The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry with Joe McGill. Good morning, good morning, how are you this morning? I'm Joe McGill and you're listening to the Saturday Supplement and I hope I find you well wherever you are listening to us around the world on Radio Kerry.ie or on the Radio Kerry app or on the traditional wireless 96 to 98 FM. Very busy programme this morning. We're going to be hearing about a new series, A Bloss of Kerry Women in Food and it's a unique eight-part series where we'll focus on female entrepreneurs who have their own food businesses in Kerry. Now, the first two episodes we'll feature is uh, Mary O'Brien Brown, who, along with her husband, Alan Brown, fish for oysters in Tralee Bay and Wilma's Cologlan Farmhouse Cheese. We'll also have a new 10-part series called Logamnica Kiri, where we hear from national school children in Kerry who tell the stories and meaning of local place names in their area. And uh, we'll hear from the school children of Skaldarka on Valinch Island this morning and also the school children of Corraheen National School in Glimbe. We'll have our Kerry County Council Creative Kingdom letting you know what's going on in the arts world. Now, a blast of Kerry, Women in Food is a unique eight-part series, like I mentioned, where we will focus on female entrepreneurs who have their own food businesses in Kerry. This series will gather some of the finest food businesses in the county, where the owners share a dedication to quality food, supporting each other and using local ingredients. We will explore some of the most impressive and interesting Kerry female-run businesses today who are truly doing their county proud. And in this, the first episode, we hear from Wilma's Clorgland Farmhouse Cheese, which is made to a Gouda recipe from Wilma's native Holland. This documentary is a Maureen Nivehuna production. It was funded by Commission the Man with the television license fee. This is A Bloss of Kerry, Women in Food, a unique eight-part series where we will focus on female entrepreneurs who have their own food businesses in Kerry. The series will gather some of the finest food businesses in the county, where the owners share a dedication to quality food, supporting each other and using local ingredients. We will explore some of the most impressive and interesting Kerry female-run businesses today, who are truly doing their county proud. In this episode, we hear from Wilma's Glorglum Farmhouse Cheese, which is made to a Gouda recipe from Wilma's native Holland. Wilma Sylvia lives with her husband, Johnny Porridge O'Connor, on their farm. This great recipe, together with the milk from their own herd of Frisian cows, grazing at the foothills of the Kerry Mountains, makes a fantastic combination. She also makes flavoured Gouda, the likes of cloves, cumin, seaweed and garlic. She sells the cheese in its young state after six weeks and holds some back to mature for up to three years. My name is Wilma and the name of the company is Wilma's Kelorglin Farmhouse Cheese. We are in Kelorglin, County Kerry. The idea came actually from me because uh, I hail from uh, the Netherlands and um, in the time when I started making cheese here, there wasn't really much cheese available around the place. And I grew up with cheese, you know. It was the staple food, really, in the sandwiches, going to school, etc. And um, I couldn't get any here. There was one 
Sheila Niels in, in, op Bridge Street. They had some proper uh, cheddar. But for the rest, everything that you got was like three counties cheese bread or gold tea or that. Not uh, really to my taste or John's taste even. And... Um, uh, well, when I started making cheese was in 1988. But I uh, came to live in Ireland for good in 1980. I started in Trinity College on the 1st of January. And um, I worked there for three years. And then I came to Clarkland and got a job with the VEC as a career guidance teacher. So, yeah, I was homesick for a good bit of cheese. Every time I went to Holland and brought a kilo over, then John would have it eaten before I got my hands on it. So I said, we have to do something. And then a friend of mine sent me a recipe. Uh, I love cooking. So I just uh, uh, went with it and got a little pack where that you could make a little pound cheese, you know, out of a... Or two little pounds cheeses out of a bucket of 10 liter. And I did that for a while. And then I got a bigger tub and a bigger cheese mold. And kept working till about, that was in 88, I'd say 1990, beginning 1990. I said, look, uh, that was after that German chef had been encouraging me to make my garlic cheese. I said, maybe we can, you know, add some value to uh, the farm by uh, making cheese. Uh, because in that time then, I started in 82 here in the, in the tech in Kilauglin and uh, teaching. But then my hours were cut all the time because it was a recession, late 80s. And I was the last one in, you know, they were kind of, if they're looking for people to cut hours, I was the, the person to cut it on. So yeah, so and we, in the meantime, we had four children. So you had to keep going. Small farm, you know, there wasn't uh, that much uh, coming out of it in profit lines. And that you had to have an extra income, as you still would have with a small farm. Um, so, yeah, so we kind of scouted around. I went to the help board. They were very helpful, actually. I said, there's an old garage there that John was making his... That's the cheese room now. John was cleaning his tractors and repairing his tractors with a big pit. And fair play to her, Sheila. She came out and she says, if you cover all this, like I tell you, with tiles up to there and the floor properly done and all your vents away from the slurry and manure areas, that'll do. So that's where we started in that room. And... Um, Every year we actually kind of expanded, built on a bit. I started with a 200 liter wooden tub, no heating in it. So we had to take the milk straight from the cows to get it at the right temperature. And um, yeah, after a bit, and what was it, about three years, two years, two years doing that, we got uh, the cheese tub we have now, with help of uh, the leader program. Actually. Wilma's production facility is not far from their house on the family farm. We're in the uh, actual cheese parlor, the, the cheese making room, where uh, we have a, a big tub of 600 liter um, uh, content that can be filled with milk coming in straight from the milking machine next door, from our own cows, obviously. Uh, we milk 20 cows this year. And, um, yeah, we, 
are kind of more or less busy a whole day with yeah. this because I start at five o'clock pasteurizing milk because we batch pasteurize, pasteurize. And then I, um, uh, around 10 o'clock I can set the cheese and then by three or half past three I'll be finished with uh, having the cheese out in my molds under the presses. So how is cheese made? Well, cheese is actually... Um, uh, it combines a lot of different ways of preservation. You know, you, kind of, you start off with the milk, you add uh, a bacterial culture. The bacterial culture uses the lactose in the milk, um, eats it up and reproduces itself. All the bacteria start growing more bacteria. But it also has as a byproduct that it changes the lactose into lactic acid. That creates a, an acid environment in the milk. And with that, you have a good chance of coagulation, right? Like if you would have your milk, if you sour your milk, uh, after a day or so, you get a thick layer up on the top and a watery bit in the bottom. It's the same principle, only with the cheese making, you do it in a fast forward kind of a movement uh, by adding the bacteria already that normally would be in the air. The presses then are kind of the traditional ones that I brought from Holland. Well, this one is. Um, then my local carpenter, John Joe Sullivan from Calniversi, fashioned that one for me. And um, it will compact the cheese. What you try and do is, again, it's the dehydration. You want to get as much whey out of your cheese. That's what I was trying to explain. You get a curd after coagulation. You start cutting that, and when you cut it, the whey and the curd separate. And then if you um, keep stirring and cutting, the little bits of curd get smaller and smaller. In the end of the process, you pack them all in a net, which I have here. You put it in a net, in a, in a cheese mold. And you put a cover on it, that also has a net in it. Here. And the, it starts pressing then under the press, it presses against the net, which makes that the outside loses more uh, liquid than the inside, and you form your rind. That is the, the principle of the Gouda cheese. If you have um, a softer cheese, like a brie or so, you normally let it drip. They are not pressed. You know, you put it in a mold and then you let it drip out. And after all this, how long before your cheese is ready for market? Uh, six weeks. Because after the after the the pressing, they're taken out the next day and they're put in the brine. This is the brine uh, uh, top. The brine top has 20% salt and a pH of 4.8, which is about the same as the cheese. And that means that the cheese will soak up the salt in the brine and shed some more of the, the whey that's on the outside in the rind. It hardens up the rind and it salts the cheese. That's your third way of preservation. So you're acidifying, you're dehydrating and you're salting. Now, after that, they're put here on shelves to, to dry off and they are coated with a whey product. It's a semi-permeable product that... Um, uh, it, it, it gives a kind of a smooth surface to the cheese, which makes it easier to keep clean, which is important for a Gouda-type cheese because you're storing those for at least six weeks, up to four or five years. 
And uh, it also pre- uh, prevents too much evaporation. Because if I have a cheese now of 10 kilo coming out of my brain, after 12 months, I have only 9 kilo left. There's still evaporation going on. So after that, the cheese is brought into the maturing room. It's um, just a simple principle with fresh air coming in and a fan actually letting the air go over. The Irish uh, climate is actually perfect for a Gouda type because there's plenty of humidity and it also has a, the right temperature. The, the medium temperature here is between 12 and 16 degrees, which is just the, 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 the kind of temperature that the cheeses ripen at. Okay, so these cheeses then, when they are just young, like these, when they're mild, they have to be turned every day and dusted. At the moment now, they have actually, they can be done every three days or four days, because uh, they're not as moist anymore as they, the way they came, came out. So what you see here is what I made this year, and the, you know, the lighter colored ones. Um, I have a few of last year left, and then there's a, uh, a few that are um, older, like three, four, five years old. Some of them I don't even know anymore because the date has gone off them. I label them all, you see. <coughs> so like this one now was made the 21st of the 9th. This is kind of the last cheese I made this year. And how long can cheese survive for? Uh, quite long. Um, uh, there's very few cheeses that I open after four years that I have to throw out. It, but it's always a bit of a gamble. It depends on how, how well you make them in the start. If you want to really store a cheese very well, you have to work them uh, enough, the, the curd enough, so that you get a, a kind of a dry type of structure. Like you would have a, a cheddar as well. And uh, the, the acidity has to be high enough. These cheeses, I always say that to children when they come in here to have a look. They're not just lying there. They're like little factories, you know. Uh, at this stage now, there is still lactose in that cheese. But after six months, all the, you know, the, those bacteria that I actually added in the start of the process, they are continuing to work in the cheese and they are uh, eating up all that lactose. So after six months, seven months, in a hard cheese, whether it is a cheddar or a, um, a gouda or an edam or, you know, Norwegian cheese or an Italian parmesan, for instance, there's no more lactose left. So that's a good thing for people who have lactose intolerance, mm. you know. Uh, the coating is just, a, it's, it's a whey product, you paint it on. Long ago, people used to actually, um, before the coating, they rub butter on the outside of cheese to kind of keep the malt away and to keep it, um, keep it fresh. And that's the first part of Wilma's Farmhouse Cheese episode. We'll hear the second part after the break. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. Now let's return to a blast of Kerry Women in Food. Our first episode is Wilma's Farmhouse Cheese. The longer you leave cheese to mature, the more the flavour develops. It develops in flavour. It's not 
only stronger. It just all kind of, like I say, there's enzymes inside in that cheese. They also keep working. So there's a difference between a mild cheese is a very buttery, kind of a mild kind of a flavor. If you have an older cheese, uh, it's... Um, yeah, it's more fuller bouquet of of uh, flavors inside in it. And what is Wilma's favorite cheese? My own favorite one is actually uh, the one that I have. Where have I got it? It's a clove, cheese with cloves. It's from the area where my parents were born in Friesland. Um, I, I normally make one batch a year and uh, uh, you have to have it at least at six months of age. Otherwise it isn't... Um, that interesting because then the clove would o- uh, overpower the cheese flavor. But from six months on, it is actually quite nice. So I made this a bit late, the end of July, but I hope I'll be able to open one now for Christmas <laughs> and enjoy it. It's really nice with a glass of Irish whiskey, for instance, or port or that kind of thing. As well as plain, Wilma also makes cheeses with cumin, garlic or cloves which are available in rounds ranging from one kilo to 10 kilos. In general, I would make a, a plain cheese with not, no additives. I use, um, f- uh, I make a few batches with, with cumin, which is another Dutch uh, recipe from around the town of Leiden near The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, I use um, garlic, which is something I picked up from a German chef in the Glencar Hotel when I just started off making cheeses in my kitchen. He says, oh, if you put garlic in it, uh, I'll buy it. I said, yeah, but how much? I don't really know. So he says, you make it and I tell you when you're right. So that's, we kind of cooperated that way. It worked out very well. And uh, yeah, I make uh, a garlic cheese. Actually, the garlic cheese is very interesting too because they are lovely when they're mild, but they are also, they develop like a fruity flavor the older they get. So if you have a, a, say, a two-year-old cheese with garlic in it, it is really very nice uh, flavor. Yeah. You don't taste garlic anymore. You just, it, it, it's just, a, I'll give you a taste later. <laughs> yeah. And then I do one with seaweed. I started that a few years ago. A friend of ours, uh, Rolf, he kind of said, why don't you make a seaweed cheese? And... Um, I said, yeah, not a bad idea. And uh, he knew somebody, um, Bernard Kerry, that uh, harvests uh, seaweed products. And uh, I've been buying seaweed from him on and off. To I make one batch of, two batches of seaweed every year as well. And then I had uh, another local ingredient, was a friend of ours, Jonathan, over in Kiel. He was doing, he was growing wasabi. And... Um, Yeah, the wasabi is kind of tricky itself. But what I did is I used the wasabi leaf, which has a lovely crunch and is green. And then I added uh, chili pepper and uh, to get uh, the spicy flavor. So wasabi leaf and chili pepper was very popular. Now this year, unfortunately, his wasabi didn't uh, grow that well. Hopefully next year again. Uh, So what I did this year, I made one batch with uh, green and red chili pepper. So uh, hopefully that'll be nice too. Every week, Wilma hosts a little country market on her farm, right next door to her cheese production facility in Kilorglan. Now, 
This is where we normally have a market now on a Saturday. That is started since COVID. We came here from Milltown because uh, we couldn't keep uh, our distance in Milltown. We were used to sit around tables and have coffees and teas together and everything and the chatting. And I, I just couldn't keep people separated from each other. So we started up an order system that time. Uh, so that uh, all the small suppliers, because as people, you know, they come with a few bonds or a few bits of bread and things like that, uh, candles and, and what have you, that they could still keep going and have something to do and to keep the customers kind of uh, that were in the area uh, coming in as well. Um, so that worked perfect. Um, we've been here now since 2020, basically. I think, was it... Yeah, it was more or less two weeks after the COVID uh, was kind of announced that people had to keep distance and everything. We said, look, it won't work in Milltown, so we came here. So I was here as the only person kind of handing out the products. Uh, the suppliers would come in in the morning and put their stuff out and then I would kind of deal with it. And, but at the moment now, there are a few more people that come uh, on the Saturday as well. So yeah, little country market, little farmer's market, yeah. Wilma's products are available by mail order at the farm gate or at several local stores. We were in the, in the 90s and early 2000. Uh, we were all over the country. We were up from Belfast down to Wexford, uh, Galway, Limerick, uh, Dublin. We, had, we did all roadje stores, supermarkets, super, uh, yeah, the supermarket part of roadje stores. And we had a lot of delicatessen, uh, um, a cork as well. Um, and then here around, I did my own rounds along little uh, shops around. Uh, I did the Ring of Kerry one. I did Dingle, went to Killarney, went to Tralee. So, yeah. Now at the moment, we only supply locally here. A few pl- places around Killarglen and then at the market. And then, of course, Mark in, uh, in Dingle. He uh, sells quite a lot of my cheese as well. When Wilma arrived from Holland to Killarglen, she was struck by how many female entrepreneurs there were in the area. When I came to Kilorglen, I was always surprised at how many women entrepreneurs there were. If you looked around the local shops, it was often the women that were in the shop. You know, the vegetable shop, and the McCarthy's, uh, there was the, the Dotses, the, you know, um, Mrs. Champs, uh, Bridie Grady, uh, you know, the, it was often the women that were running the the places. <laughs> uh, and, well, kind of in the sense of... of, of um, I don't think they kind of considered it as, as being an entrepreneur, you know? You just did what you have to do to add to the family income, you know? Like, the, the, the husband might be away doing some other job, and they held down the home front kind of thing, including the shop, including the farm. I did census... And I worked for Central Statistics Office on the Labour Force Survey. And I remember going into a farmyard. And I went, this was for the Labour Force Survey, there was a lady there in the, the milking pit cleaning up after milking. Just had milked the cows and was cleaning up, etc. So she said, come on in and, you know, cup of tea, etc. And we did the survey and I asked her, you know, how many hours was she working on the farm? Oh, I'm not working at all. I said, but you were just milking cows. Ah, but that's part of the part of the the job of housewife, really, you know. She didn't consider that as being 
uh, a job or working or contributing to the farmers. The great recipes, together with the milk from their own herd of Frisian cows grazing at the foothills of the Kerry Mountains, makes a fantastic combination. And this, for Wilma, makes all the difference. Yeah, since John went into politics some years ago, <laughs> he, um, you know, he couldn't really do everything. So more and more of the milking and the, the farm, uh, that side of the farm came to me. And he was kind of doing the tractor work and the fencing and the, doing the fields and the fertilizing. And, you know, just you're in a partnership, so you kind of work together. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how it, how it evolved, really. That's the, that's the beauty of it, because you know what you actually put into your product, you know? Um, I have over the years kind of thought maybe it would be handier if we bought in some milk or something like that. But yeah, you have to, you're depending then on the, the, the quality of the, of the milk that you get in from the, the other people. Now, the, f- the few times that we did work like that, when we were, especially in the in the 90s, when we were very, very busy. I mean, you see this here now, this is empty, and that's not full, but that was up to the, the knock full, and this was full. And I was actually going up to Kate Carmody's good friend of mine up in Beel, and used her storeroom for a while for my mature cheeses, because, you know, we were just too... We hadn't enough room here. And... Um, that in those years we also got some bought some some milk here and there, and uh, always worked out perfect because people are, you know, helpful. They're, you know, they're normally quite good. <laughs> and if people want to avail of some of Wilma's farmhouse cheese, where should they go? Uh, they can uh, look on uh, the Facebook page, or they can ring me up, or I, I don't have a website. Uh, I go through Facebook uh, most of the time and they can come to Art Moniel and um, I send it as well I post uh, cheeses off it's quite uh, hard cheeses is is kind of easy enough to to post so I do that as well and finally what does Wilma love about the cheese business I don't know it's a hands on thing sometimes in the autumn uh, when we have the last cheese I said oh, you know I'm really sick of this I can't see I, myself going in again and then in the springtime you get this kind of itch you know you're kind of saying ah the cows are starting to milk a bit better yeah let's put them outside now because we, we kind of came to the conclusion if they're out on grass that's when you make your best cheese really so yeah if they go out now next week maybe we can make a batch of cheese the week after you know and then you you kind of you put your, your milk you see your milk flowing into your vat and you, you handle your first cheese again you say yeah this is absolutely brilliant <laughs> so that's it you kind of like you say you are there from the, the little heifer calf that is born, you know, you feed them, you bring them up, you uh, uh, get them in calf themselves, you start milking them yourself, uh, the milk comes in, you know, it's really, it's a great life, that way. <laughs> Yeah, and thanks a million to Wilma there for welcoming me uh, to her Choose Producer.
producing facility and the farm and also hello to her husband uh, Johnny Wilma did a great job on that now we'll take a break with more after these The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you by Virgin Media Ireland's best broadband visit virginmedia.ie it's playtime now I hope you're enjoying the programme so far Logamnica Kiri is a new series which will explore the place names of Kerry and where they derive from. In this 10-part series, National School Children in Kerry will tell the stories and meaning of local place names in their area. It is produced by Maureen Ni Vahuna. The School Children of Skaldaraka on Valinch Island is where we're going to go to first. This documentary is a Maureen Ni Vahuna production. It was funded by Commission the Man with the television licence fee. school children of Skaldarka, Valencia County Kerry. Our history left from past generations can be found in our townlands, localities and even fields. Today we are going to tell you about the area we come from, the place names in this area and their meaning and the fascinating stories behind these names. The English name Valencia or Valencia Island does not come from the Spanish city of Valencia. Instead, it comes from the Irish name of Valencia Harbour, Coon Vale Incha, Harbour Mouth of the Islands. It was anglicised as Bailincha and Valencia before evolving into Valencia. It is possible the spelling was influenced by Spanish sailors. There is a grave market too. Spanish sailors lost at sea in the Catholic cemetery at Calma. The Irish name for the island is Derbra, properly meaning Oak Isle. Situated four kilometres from our school is the village of Knightstown. Knightstown is called after the Knights of Kerry who lived at Glanleam. Knightstown is a village designed by Alexander Nemo under the direction of the Knight of Kerry. It has a beautiful array of period buildings and houses with a royal hotel on the seafront and the former transatlantic cable buildings on the waterfront. Here you can watch the Valencia Island Car ferry making its way back and forth to Renard. Visitors love to walk the village, taking in Alphazmith Walk, the marina and RNLI lifeboat station. Our school is located in Chapeltown or Osquilga on Quail. Chapeltown is located in the centre of the island, approximately three kilometres from the bridge which links the island to the mainland at Port McGee. Our local Catholic church is located here just down the road from our school. A church is often called a chapel and this is where Chapeltown got its name. In addition to the school, it is also home to our community centre and GAA grounds where the Valencia Young Islanders play their football. This is also the home of legendary GA star Mick O'Connell, who captained Kerry to All Ireland Glory. And Mick O'Connell celebrates an All Ireland victory in today. Another townland in our community is Ballymanoch, or Osquilga on Bala Manoch. This translates into English as the Middletown. Farm Ryuk means greyish land. 
This comes from the Irish translation on Farn Revoc. Farn meaning land and Revoc meaning grey or street. Today we use the word Talun for land and we use the Irish word Leah for grey. Gersgauer is the name of another place in Valencia. Gersgauer translates as the field of the goat. Gert is the Irish word for field and Gower means goat. I hope you enjoyed us telling you the meaning of some of the place names or Lug Anam Nuka in our area. We learned a lot about the wonderful places we live in and we hope you did too. Now when you visit our area you won't just see names on a signpost. You will know the meaning behind these names. We look forward to welcoming you. Yeah, well done to the school children of Skull Dorarka and a big thank you to their principal, Paul O'Connor, there. Now, let's go to Glimbe and Corrigine National School. This documentary is a Maureen Vihuna production. It was funded by Commission the Man with a television licence fee. <laughs> Students of Curryheen National School, Glenbay County, Kerry. Our history left from past generations can be found in our townlands, localities and even fields. Today we are going to tell you about the area we come from, the place names in this area, and their meaning and the fascinating stories behind these names. Glenbay is a vibrant tourist village on the Ivra Peninsula. The village is surrounded by a horseshoe of hills and Seafin Mountain. The Car River and the Behi River flow at either side of the village into Castlemaine Harbour. The Irish name for Glenbay is Glanbeha. This means the Glen of the Birch. There must be a lot of birch trees in the area. Another possible meaning for the place is the Glen or Valley of the Behi River. A number of the Fina legends or stories have a link to Glenbay. These legends suggest that Dearmir and Grania spent a few days hiding in a cave in the valley of the Behi. The breathtaking Ross Bay Beach is situated near Glenbay. Legend also has it that Ross Bay Beach was the place where Oshin and Liam took to the sea on their white horse to live in Tirano, the land of eternal youth. Curraheen, the Irish name for Curraheen is on Curraheen. Curraheen means a small moor. A moor is a tract of open, uncultivated upland, typically covered with heather. I live in a townland called Dukes, or in Irish, Naduka. The meaning behind this log anum is sandbanks. Another townland in our area is Ballinicula or in Irish, Ballinicilla. This means the town or the homestead of the church. 
I live in a place called Rina Lagoon. The Irish is Rina Nalgoon. This means point of the tones. I live in the townland Kilnamrak. The Irish version of it is Kilnamrak, which translates as the Church of Trout. That's a bit funny. <laughs> I live in a place called Belly Cleave. In Irish, this is Bilha on Cleave, or Bilha on Cleave, meaning mouth of the fort of the mountain. The name of my townland is Clahan, or on Clahan. It means a stony ford. A ford is a shallow place in a river or stream, allowing one to walk or drive across. Another townland in our area is a place called Tremanoch or Sgwelga on Tremanoch. This means the middle third. Kulu. The Irish name for Kulu is on Kulua. This means the red corner or angle. The final townland we will explore in our area is Drown. The Irish name is on Drown. This means a ridge. A ridge is a long, narrow hilltop mountain range or watershed. I hope you enjoyed us telling you the meaning of some of the place names or Lug Anamaka in our area. We learned a lot about the wonderful places we live in and we hope you did too. Now when you visit our area, you won't just see names on a signpost. You will know the meaning behind these names. We look forward to welcoming you. Yeah, well done to all the pupils and the teachers of Corraheen National School in Glimbe. We're going to take a break. We'll have more after these. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. Now, we will have another episode of A Blast of Kerry, Women in Food, and we'll be hearing from Mary O'Brien Brown, who fishes for oysters with her husband, Alan Brown, in Tralee Bay, and we'll be hearing that in the next hour. We'll also have our Kerry County Council, Creative Kingdom, and I uh, hope you enjoyed our Lugamnica Kiri, where we went to national schools around this county, and they told the meanings uh, of both the place names and the history behind them, where they live. And uh, one of the episodes that you will be hearing in the coming weeks will be from Tahilla. Uh, National School and that's just outside of Sneem there on the way to Temple Noah from the Sneem side and uh, beautiful uh, um, country school and it was really nice to visit there but uh, I was asked to remind you by their principal Maura that they have a big winter concert uh, coming up and it's uh, the junior room and the senior room will be performing a short play and the whole school will be playing their Tin whistles and singing. And they had Aoife Desmond, a mu- music generation, coming to them every week. And uh, we 
do talk about music generation a lot on the programme with our Kerry County Council Creative Kingdom, which we will have in the next hour. So it's the Tehila National School present a winter concert, concert Tuesday the 12th of December. It's at half 12 and the venue is the Carnegie Arts Centre in Khmer. What a wonderful facility it, that is. So you should go along and support that and well done to everyone involved and to all the national schools. This was a great project uh, with Maureen Nui-Vihuna and myself. We were going out to these schools and visiting them and uh, recording them. It'd be great to do another one actually. We have a real thirst for it because uh, it's very important that uh, school kids they know the place names where they live and also I suppose that we all know so they're doing us a favour as well um, so it's a lovely project to be involved in and to hear all the different young voices now we're going to take a break for the news and I'll join you again in the next hour The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you by Virgin Media Ireland's best broadband visit virginmedia.ie it's playtime on Radio Kerry now we're into the second hour of the Saturday Supplement and it's time to hear another episode of A Blast of Kerry, Women in Food which we have just started on the programme this morning. It's a unique eight-part series where we will focus on female entrepreneurs who have their own food businesses in Kerry. Now in this episode we'll hear from Mary O'Brien Brown who along with her husband Alan Brown fish for oysters in Tralee Bay and are part of Tralee Oyster Fishery Society Limited. This is A Blast of Kerry. Women in Food, a unique eight-part series where we will focus on female entrepreneurs who have their own food businesses in Kerry. The series will gather some of the finest food businesses in the county, where the owners share a dedication to quality food, supporting each other and using local ingredients. We will explore some of the most impressive and interesting Kerry female-run businesses today who are truly doing their county proud. In this episode, we will hear from Mary O'Brien Brown, who along with her husband Alan Brown fish for oysters in Tralee Bay and are part of Tralee Oyster Fisheries Society Limited. Mary O'Brien Brown, Tralee Bay Oysters. We're out here in the beautiful Phoenix. We are at the Tralee Bay Oyster Co-op um, factory and we are just looking out at Sammy's Rock, Kelly's Beach, behind me is the sailing club and the viaduct is to my right and looking straight out at Tralee Bay Oyster Bed. Phoenix is a hidden gem and I think it's becoming more and more popular of late but uh, yeah, it's, it's something else really looking at it. It is clear that Mary has salt water in the veins with many of her family making a living from the sea. I suppose I come from a long stevedore and fishing family and then I married into a fishing family also. So I suppose we never really, Alan and I, my husband, we never had a discussion about oyster fishing. It just happened. So um, not long after I had the two boys, I was up the oyster bed as well. So my earliest memories of being in primary school, sitting next to Patrick Lynch and asking him, why are you not at school every day this week and he goes I'm oyster fishing and I remember being so jealous thinking here you are getting days off school and we were quite young at the time and um, today my own children saying to me mom can we get a day off school to go oyster fishing yeah so it was it was something else I suppose growing up here uh, in Phoenix it would have been very busy with you know boats and trawlers the Jane Johnston when she was being finished off you would have had massive trawlers coming in and out here ships always were coming in and out I suppose uh, the direction of the wind and the swell and the, and the forecast was always a hot topic in Phoenix growing up. My father actually was in the army so but my mother um, my mom uh, Bernadette her mother and her father 
Patsy King was a stevedore as well as her grandfather he started the shipping here but she used to pick um, my nan used to pick uh, Corrigine and Periwinkles so she was always out you know and she used to bring us the odd Saturday as well out so we were always getting wet with the wellies and out into the tide stevedore is uh, he would have been like managing the uh, the ships as they come in out of Phoenix so my grandmother's uh, grandfather Daniel King and then um, Patsy King his son and then his grandson Patrick King my nan's brother so they all would have been linked in with the shipping here Growing up the pier at Feenet was the main focal point My brother Richard would have been he would have always had experiences going uh, trawling and stuff but we would have always been you know up and down the pier you know we always would, would have known who was landing and who wasn't and what was happening yeah it was always a hot topic of conversation there wasn't much happening in Feenet than a couple of years ago so uh, the pier was always the main hive activity and the main topic of discussion My home is uh, Castle View so it's in the centre of of Phoenix, but now I live uh, opposite the West End there so I live in the centre of the village so um, I suppose when I went to university I lived away in Cork but um, I've always lived in Phoenix. yeah I did first in UCC food science and technology and then um, later years then I did general nursing and truly IT now MTU it is clear that Mary is one of those people that have to live by the sea yeah I suppose I've lived away but there there's nowhere like driving home and coming down as we'd call it Gainer Hill and you just you're driving along through Spa and you come down in the drop and you can just see the vista in front of you it's panoramic you know you have the Stevenage Mountains you're looking at uh, Moor. you can see the lighthouse appear in the distance it's just you know and, and any time we're talking to people away coming home even my sister she'd always say I can't wait to see that view After Mary got married it wasn't long before the sea came calling and she started fishing for oysters so I married my husband Alan Brown in 2012 and I wasn't long up the oyster with him after that. <laughs> so we're oyster fishing away uh, as a team, husband and wife team. So there isn't a lot of women oyster fishing. You'd have some brother or sister or you'd have um, you'd have husband and wives or partners going up. So uh, it actually is, I suppose it was just a natural transition, you know, just to go oyster fishing. His mother, um, Marita, she oyster fished and all Alan's and sort of oyster fish burned it and uh, Liz Brown all of them the oyster fish so it was just kind of naturally that you just did it really there was no there was never a conversation it was just you're going up the oyster bit and come on let's go you know it is not the norm to see so many women actively involved in the fishing industry in an area I thought it is a unique oyster fishery as in for many years you know especially in the 80s when times were extremely hard these families would go up their husband and wife and the time suited um families you know it was either say seven or twelve it suited you know school times and school runs and it still to this day suits so uh, i suppose that's how many families here would have you know survived so how does one fish for oysters in tralee bay uh, I suppose oyster fishery, it's a lovely fishery as in it's quite simple. You have your boat, your permit, your license, and then you have your dredge and your oyster table and your oyster ring. Now some would use a knife and some would, um, their hands are so well used to just using the oyster ring that they would fly through them. But to think that east, each oyster, each oyster is handled by hand. So every time that you go up to Dublin City or go out foreign and you're eating your oysters and they come out on a plate of six, eight or twelve, you know, to think that each one of these was, you know, handled by the fisher person, by the woman or the man, do you know what I mean? So um, 
it's quite a simple fishery. Yeah, you put out the dredge and because oysters grow in colonies, the dredge is, is flat surfaced. So I call it the purse. The purse goes along and she's collecting oysters and everything goes into it, shells and you seaweed and everything. And then you land the dredge onto the table and then you're grading them, the oysters then. So you have a quite a large ring. It's 78 millimetres. And then you either throw it back into the sea or you keep it, you know. So then the ones that fit the ring are... are quite large they're usually but bigger than the palm of your hand they're put into the basket then and you have to collect each boat then because it's a co-op has a certain amount of kilos then to catch Tralee Bay is one of the few self-seeding native wild Irish oyster fisheries found in Europe the Tralee Bay oyster fishery is one of the largest self-reproducing oyster beds in western Europe which is something they work extremely hard at protecting so I suppose Tralee Bay is quite unique at this bed um, is unique in Europe you know um, all these oysters are grown here there's even meridian stone age tracks so there was always oysters here the legend has it that was when St. Brendan went on his voyage that he even had oysters in his uh, basket but there was always oysters here so um, they grow in colonies so they grow in like tracks and lines so often when people are looking out they'll see the boats going up and down on a line and that's the, the track they're going up with the dredge so I suppose it's it's not like ploughing ploughing has forks and is deep and goes into the into the, um, the ground the, the dredge just goes along and skims the top so they're kind of like each year then they grow then so it's just clearing mm. clearing away this oyster bed we don't have to go out and harvest them we don't have to go out and uh, do any planting or growing they grow naturally so um, they're a natural native growing oyster so that's why here is quite unique and the most um, unique feature about one oyster is they filter the amount of water that you would use in a shower per day so can you imagine there's a lot of oysters out there and this is why you know this bay is so clean and uh, we have blue flags and it's a great swimming location as well so what kind of breed of oyster is native to here they are the native flat uh, european oyster so to pick them up and handle them you know there's there's weight in them um to the person eating them there's a unique acidic taste because the the water and the environment where it's growing so um that's why they're totally unique when you look at other, other countries that have uh, lost oysters and thankfully thanks to Denis and the oyster co-op uh, management throughout the years it is thriving the success of oyster fishing changes from year to year uh, so i suppose this year the weather would have been warmer but the weather would have been good then for the spawning and the growth of oysters. So this year would be uh, seen as good years. But you'd have many bad years too as well and prices fluctuate and discussions can get quite heated on board boats and everything. But you know, you get on with it, you know, when they're all talking about them. But um, yeah, it's like everything in life, you get good and bad. Local knowledge is key to fishing for oysters and insights handed down through generations is invaluable. Yeah, I see it every day and I suppose sometimes I feel that there's no rule book or no guidebook with, with this and when I look at Alan's father, Pat, and he's, he's here since he's 11 years of age and he's near, I won't say he's quite mature, but like when you look at all the fishing knowledge that he has, even that Alan has, they instinctively know the direction of the wind and they know the swell and even manoeuvring the boat and the dredge and all of that and, you know, to the person on board the boat, you're being kept safe and the dredge is coming in and coming out and landing, but there's a whole lot of other different forces at play in their heads that have how to, you know, for all the all the fishermen here when they're going out with their boats in the morning and um, some mornings here can be quite cold and some of them are going up and it's quite dark you know, the odd morning that I'm nursing I'm driving to work, it's lovely to look out then at the bay and you see the little lights and you see the boats going up and down and you know what they're doing but um, yeah the knowledge here is, is huge amongst all the oyster fishery So where does the catch end up after it is fished from the sea? 
So the, they'll come in here to the pier now shortly. You'll see the boats come in now and they'll land and they will then come down here to the, the co-op here and they'll be graded then by Dennis and the team. Um, any ones that are too small will be thrown away or well kept for kept to go out for next year and then the ones that are kept um, and packaged and they are distributed and the market at the moment I think is Spain so um, I always associate oyster fishing with either Easter or Christmas so at the moment we're getting ready for the Christmas market which will be in France tradition is every Christmas Eve that they have oysters and think that like we hear you know it's nice to bit on Christmas Eve we wouldn't have oysters Christmas Eve <laughs> do you know <laughs> and we fish them yeah, Mary O'Brien Brown there, and we'll return to her episode after these. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. Now let's return to a blast of Kerry Women in Food, and in this episode, we're hearing from Mary O'Brien Brown, who, along with her husband, Alan Brown, fish for oysters in Tralee Bay, and they're also involved in the tourism industry there. Like all working mothers, Mary has a busy life and plays a lot of different roles in order to ensure she is successful in life and business. So I suppose I'm a mother to three children, uh, Sirisha Thomas and Dermot, and then I have a nurse in the Von Scores in Chile and the endoscopy unit. And then in the summer, Al and I run the Chile Bay Experience Phoenix Boat Tours. So that happened by accident. And there was a couple who are now sailing the world. And because of COVID and lockdowns, they said they'd sell the boat and it is a passenger boat to carry Colleen. And they asked us to buy it and it took a few months for us to say yes we were kind of you know will we or won't we because as you said it yourself we are juggling and it does feel like that at times because alan's still a full-time fisherman and he is involved with the ships as well in the with Lieber in the in the harbor so um yeah it's just you feel you're jumping out of one boat into another do you know like all summer long we were doing boat tours and then we're straight into oystering and then you know we'll be glad now of christmas break <laughs> well for me yeah twice a year but uh for alan it's all year round you know and uh he loves it he wouldn't do anything else and um i suppose we feel quite privileged that you know we're looking out at this and our own children are but there isn't many fishermen left you know um in Phoenix and I suppose times are changing and I still think it's quite lucky the kids growing up today can see that still because it's part of the identity of Phoenix and who we are. The tourism side of the business is going from strength to strength. Yeah, I suppose that's why Alan would have went from from fishing then into the tourism and I suppose because of COVID and lockdowns he was then able to, we were then able to start it but um, it'll get trickier because <laughs> the boat's getting, the Chile Bay experience, Phoenix boat's getting busier as well and we see bringing people out you know not many people have the opportunity to look at a lobster or look at a crab you know and face to face in real life you know and you're just trying to do what covid you know did you're trying to bond families you're trying to let them all experience things great memories because a lot of people in covid were unable to do that they were separated yeah, so I suppose we have three different tours. We'd have the Lighthouse Tour and we'd have the Chile Bay Experience Tour and then we have, a lot of them can be bespoke tours as in we had women recently and all they wanted to do was an island hopping tour. So I'll get back to that later. But the Chile Bay Experience Tour, we give them the history and the heritage of Phoenix and fishing and then Alan would talk to them also and we'd haul a fishing pot and they would get to see firsthand a live lobster and live crabs and live fish and stuff. So, um it's it's a busy tour and then we can land to the lighthouse and that always takes people's breath away because they're looking back at Phoenix and um, 
yeah, it's just, it's, it's lovely. It's just lovely being on that sea. Island hopping. So we started at, uh, we left here at Phoenix Harbour and then we went to the lighthouse and then from the lighthouse then we went back to um, the castle of Phoenix Island and we were able to get out there with the boat as well. And then from there we were able to go to O'Leary's Island and back then to Brandon. So these were a bunch of swimmers. They were uh, 12 ladies and they were looking out at the muckluck all their life and they were looking out at the whole sea because they'd swim in Banna. So when they um, when they were on the boat, they were looking at it from the completely opposite perspective, and they loved it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, aquatourism is something Mary thinks there is an opportunity in. There is, yeah, and I suppose Phoenix has it in abundance, you know. Um, but definitely, yeah, people are looking for the experience and what they can experience all within the given area. And the most important question of all: What is the best way to eat an oyster? Well, now I have only eaten them two or three times in my life. <laughs> but I have eaten them with garlic and they are lovely. And sometimes with lemon, they're okay too. But uh, my first time ever eating an oyster was in the Oyster Tavern. And uh, Jim McGrath came out with a plate of them and they were lovely. But um, yeah, I wouldn't routinely have them all the time. <laughs> yeah, this experience was raw. Yeah, and then subsequently my second time experiencing it was with uh, garlic and breadcrumbs. And it was and the shell even was hot. It was lovely. Do you know, it was, it was, it was, it was different, yeah. <laughs> Tralee Oyster Fishery Society Limited was established or registered in 1979 and had an oyster fishery order vested in it in 1981. It is a non-profit fisherman's co-op involving 78 boats and over 200 fishers. Ensuring the protection of their stock is of the highest priority to the group, ensuring that they have one of the most sustainable seafood products on the market. We are currently here now in the Chilibay Oyster grading shed. So we have two machines in front of me and all the oysters are tipped in and they are graded and they're bagged then to go to Spain. Here are the oysters currently from this morning's catch. My name is Catherine Swangler and I've been working here at the Oysters for about, I think this is my ninth, or my ninth year and I'm just here on the computer and I just document the landings and just tally up everything at the end of the day. Uh, I suppose really my family have been involved for a long time. I think when the Oysters started way back when, um, I believe my ancestors, the Tansleys on that side of the family, came all the way from Wales and we've kind of kept it in the family because um, my daughter's name is Mariah and that would be the Welsh for Mary, which my grandmother would have been Mariah. And um, yeah, so you know, the oysters have always been always been involved. And my grandfather, I think, and if if the old docket books are around anywhere, my grandfather's signature will actually be on it. And he was John Dwyer. And again, all my family would have worked in the pier. So yeah, there's quite a long history. Actually, a couple of boats in here. One day, a boat came in, and it was three women on on, on the crew. And I just thought, fair play to them. And uh, it's amazing. There's quite a few ladies come in. And what I love to see is. They still maintain, you know, our female dignity and the ladies will have their nails painted. And I'm always intrigued by that. They can be out pulling and drawing in the oysters and they come in and they just look immaculate. And there's one or two ladies and the nails are painted and they just look fantastic. And I think fair play to them all. Dennis O'Shea and I'm manager of Trilly Oyster Fisheries Society. Um, all of the oysters end up in Europe, um, into Holland and France and actually particularly in latter years uh, into Spain. Um, but 95% of them would actually go to Spain. Uh, we would normally do between 8 and 10 tonnes per day um, and 2 or 3 days per week. Uh, there's a total of 78 permit holders and the fishery would involve over 200 people, men and women. And we would have a good number of women involved and there are probably 10 or 12 in total. Yeah.
And does Mary see her children having a future in the area, doing what their parents are doing? I suppose I would love them to, but they all have their own their own ideas in mind of careers but yeah I know I, I'd love I suppose that's what Alan and I always say with the Trilby Experience Unit if we encourage the future water engineers if we encourage the future marine biologists our job is done It is important to Mary that women are seen doing these roles that are not stereotypically associated with them yeah, it is. I suppose my grandmother would have been my main female lead role model and she would have oyster fish. She would have picked carrageen. Like when I think back to the work she did back in the beach, picking carrageen and periwinkles and she would lift those bags like it was cotton wool and today I would not be in a position at that age to do it. But you know, they were the women long ago, they were strong, they were fierce women and you know, the work they did, they were the main backbone to the men. The men got the work done because they were there. You know, and they said very little about it, but they just kept going. You know, I suppose that's what these women out here represent to me, is they just get on with it. And what does Mary love about working at sea? Uh, I love it. I, it, never, it never seems like hard work to me, you know, going out. It's just... I, you see, I have the, the direct opposite. I'm inside in, you know, a small hospital, you know, in a small room. You know, the desk room is, is small, whereas out here in the open the open air, the fresh air, you know, and Alan might joke the odd time, oh, there's, there's going to be a water coming now, or, you know, and I'm like, this is a free facial, do you know? <laughs> it's just so different, but, um, yeah, there's great credit due to all the fishermen out here that get up every morning and have done for many, many years. They've kept it going, and they've kept it viable. So I got, came off the boat to talk to you, Joe. <laughs> I possibly have to go back onto it again, but, uh, yeah, I know it's great for the head. You always feel as if you've a great day's work done, you know, but um, it never ever seems like hard work. Sometimes when you're looking out and you're looking back into Phoenix, you know, I remember my ancestors and thinking they all did this, you know, and there is not many people that can say that today. And what does the future hold for Mary and the business? Oh, God. oh I don't know, Joe. I just know that it's, it's busy and it's just, I suppose, like the women up here, Lango, just get on with it and do it. Yeah, there's Mary O'Brien Brown, and I want to thank Mary for welcoming me out to Phoenix. What a gorgeous place uh, that is, and it's just a great amenity as well, everything out there in the Greenway heading out that way. And I want to thank Mary for contributing to the series. We'll take a break, and after that, we'll have our Kerry County Council, Creative Kingdom. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. Now, so it is the second Saturday of the month, and for the final time in 2023, it's time for our Kerry County Council Creative Kingdom. And as always, in all those months, we always have Kate Kennelly on with us, Arts Officer with Kerry County Council. Happy Christmas, Kate. We've come to the end of another year. Happy Christmas, Joe, and a very happy Christmas to all your listeners. And thanks for staying with us all year. <laughs> Yeah, and I suppose looking back on the year, how do you reflect on it? Uh, it was, I suppose it was the first year in a long time where you've had no distractions, no kind of COVID talk or any of that. It's been kind yeah. of straight at it. It has. We, we've had a really busy year, Joe, but, you know, really, what would I say, productive and positive. 
and very much looking forward to 24 and uh, gearing up another bit. But if, if you can do that, I, I know that my, my team here will be saying, oh no, what's chat about? But we're, we're all working away very well and uh, a lot has been delivered. You know, when I think back in particular, um, the Arts Office and the Arts Service Work, which as you know, is co-funded by the Arts Council of Ireland and Kerry County Council. We've, we've done beautiful things, I think, Joe, where a lot of people have engaged. And by engaged, I mean they've been part of. And that's what... That's what the County Council service is all about. It's about serving the people of Kerry and the people of Kerry being part of and availing of the services and being able to avail of the services, having that access. Um, so a lot of what we do is, is free, as you know, um, like the writer in residence, the filmmaker. So we had Mika, we had Catherine, we had Mara Holmes. Uh, our dancer was Catherine, of course. And between the three of those, they actually worked with over 2,000 people across the county, um, across primary schools, secondary schools, further education students, uh, with fellow artists mentoring them with members of the public with community groups so you know that's really I hope it has enhanced people's lives it has built people's confidence and it has given people a more secure footing in terms of their own individual creativity and exploring their own abilities you know because that's what it's all about and having fun and enjoying it um yeah, so we, we also Joe uh, awarded a number of grants this year so we had 29 arts act grants and this money uh, is, is, is the Arts Act is legislative and each local authority has a responsibility to support the arts in its area. So, you know, 29 recipients this year and we also awarded 25 artist bursaries across Kerry um, and a number of schools were supported as well. And I suppose this year now, Joe, the uh, open call is there. So anyone who wants to programme and to do arts activity for 2024, our deadline is the 14th of January at 1pm. So now is the time to be getting your application, having a look at it. Any questions, just contact the Arts Office. So that's 066 718 or arts at ie, and we're always happy to help now we can't write the form for people but we will tell them what they need to put in there's no problem most people know at this stage mind you um, so just over the year I suppose Joe um, like in terms of the Arts Act grant in, in particular you know it's across the county I'm looking here at the list so you the Spike Players in Tralee you the Kenmare Film Club You'd NASC Productions, who do their Sauliac sessions back in Corcagrina. You'd uh, Trilly Art Group. You'd uh, World Fiddle Day in Castle Island. You had the Binnis Project uh, in down in your own area there, around Carsevine and South Kerry, Evraw. And um, you had the Ballydunhu Bardic Festival up in Listowel, the Kerry Drama Festival in Castle Island, Lixna Kjoltas, uh, the Ivy Leaf in Castle Island, the Gathering Festival, brilliant festival again, coming around again hopefully in February in Killarney. Uh, the Bally Bunyan Arts Festival, the Handed Down series in Scarta Glen, the Concurtain Festival in Brosna, uh, Cardlin Scrivenori in Tralee, Aigshna Bridoiga down in Waterville and around uh, Derry Nan and, and again all around um, Ivrahig, and then the Patrick O'Keefe Music Festival in Castle Island, Chamber Music on Valencia. Uh, K-Fest in Kilorglan, non-faction doing craft and music around Tralee, uh, these one world singers, again Castle Island, Corcoguina, Spree Curie, Killarney, uh, Dingle Lit and uh, Fanzini's in Tralee with their National Circus Festival and Phil Nabialth in the back west. So a great spread across the county, Joe. Excellent. And Kate, as always, you always bring some special guest with you. So who have you brought with you this morning and why? 
Well, now, Joe, again, to show your, share with your listeners really an example of how the Arts Office can support artists across the county, we also have these individual artists' bursaries and awards, which again are advertised at the moment. And the creative work development is a really important one because it enables an artist's time to develop their own work. And one of the 2023 recipients is the fantastic Tara Viscardi. And I thought Tara might tell you herself what she was up to this year, Joe. Yeah, brilliant, Tara. So fill us in. What have you been up to? Oh, thanks so much for having me on, uh, Joe and Kate. Um, yeah, so the creative uh, work develop, development mercy was just invaluable because it helped with an album I recorded um, back in, at the beginning of November. So it's music from the Bear Peninsula. So my own compositions kind of inspired by the area and then tunes that were written and collected on the peninsula since the 18th century. And I'm joined by the wonderful um, leash flute player Robert Harvey on that album. So it's harp and flute. And it was recorded in Darris Church um, by kind permission of uh, Father Niall. And we'd help there from Helen Brosnan and Colette O'Brien to set up and everything as well. And it was recorded by Ben Rollins and Leisha O'Brien. So it was a wonderful project, which wouldn't have been possible without the, um, the help from Kerry County Council Arts. And why did you choose that particular kind of style of music? Um, so, well, me, myself, I'm a I'm an Irish um, traditional musician, but I also play classical music and Baroque music as well. Um, so it's kind of, I guess, my own compositions have elements of, of course, uh, traditional and folk and a bit of Baroque and kind of classical in the arrangements and things as well. So it was just a, a project um, we're very passionate about, something we wanted to record for a while and yeah again it's just not it's not possible to do these things without the generous um support received so yeah it's great and it, we're releasing it um in april of next year so that'll be another day out for us joe <laughs> definitely we've we're, our diary is filling up for nights out <laughs> uh, tara, tara i was just thinking there about you know i suppose your early influences who would they have been and who, who were your role models and who gave you a start kind of when you were starting out in, in your music wor- music world yeah sure so i started the harp um with marina cassidy um in killarney so my parents used to drag me over from from Lorac to um, Killarney after school for lessons and then I went up um, to Dublin from my last two years of school to do the classical harp with Denise Kelly McDonnell um, so I was very lucky um, starting off to have wonderful teachers um, and then um, yeah and then I studied at the TU Dublin Conservatoire up in Dublin and then I did my master's at the Royal College of Music in London and a postgrad diploma um, in harp performance at the Chipica Scuola di Musica Claudio Bado in Milan so um, yeah, so I was very, very lucky all along. And is this your first album you're bringing out or have you brought out other albums? Um, I had a, an EP released um, with the saxophonist, um, Robert Finnegan, a wonderful um, saxophonist from Loud. Um, so that came out um, in October, uh, just gone. And so that's folk music from the uh, UK and Ireland in different contexts. So um, some arrangements we've done and then some classical arrangements um, for saxophone and harp so that's available, it's called Uncovered Roots, it's on Spotify, Apple Music all that kind of thing and you can also um, uh, online you can buy prints um, of work by my dad Claudio Viscardi and Robert's dad um, Ken Finnegan who are both visual artists so you can buy a print um, of images they chose that kind of are linked to the project and then a QR code links to the music. 
Excellent. And Kate, I was going to say, we're an esteemed company here, aren't we? And it's in the genes as well, it seems. It is. Uh, I was saying, Joe, I remember years and years ago, like I, I'd say I was in the job two or three years and I ran a small visual artist project where the Kerry County Council funded visual artists for like, I think it was three days overall to go into primary schools to work with the children on visual arts to give them more of an experience then maybe some schools would be able to if the teachers weren't comfortable teaching visual art, you know. So Claudio Viscardi, who is an amazing artist, I mean, his work is just superb. Claudio and his his children were in Norwalk National School and he went in and he did the workshops there and I saw the kids work. I mean, Joe, it, the standard was so high and uh, I remember the, the very... Um, intuitive teacher there and, and, and principal she put on a, an excellent exhibition and all the parents came in and bought the kids work of course and that money then was reinvested for more arts and creativity in the school so it was a beautiful project but Claudio put a standard on it but to see the standard that the children reached through his uh, tutorship and his I suppose his love of what he does he took them outside they were sitting down painting the sky and clouds and trees and Oh, the work was just outstanding. So um, I think uh, Tara has had great inspiration. Her mom, of course, used, used to run the art gallery as well. So she definitely comes from a very creative genes, I'd say. Yeah, you'd no other choice, so Tara, only to be creative. <laughs> oh, sure, this is it, exactly. Yeah, it was all around. Our parents are very supportive as well. And my twin brother, Connor, he's a, a fine musician and, and he's doing great things as well. Um, so, yeah, so no, it's, it's lovely to be able to do this very personal project now. Brilliant. And we are going to hear a track from the new album. We're very uh, pleased to get a bit of a sample of, of what's uh, to come. So, um, Tara, thanks a million for coming on. But I'll get you to introduce this next piece that will bring us to the break. So what is this? Um, thanks a million. So this next piece is Bearer's Voyage. So another um, kind of thing we're leaning into for the album is the legend of Princess Bera who was said came over um, uh, around 120 AD. So Owen King of Ireland, who was said married her. She was the daughter of the King of Castile. And uh, we really like this this story. Um, and it was said that Bera was named after her. So this is kind of imagining her voyage over from Spain over to the Bera Peninsula. So Bera's voyage. Brilliant. This is Bera's voyage. Thank you. 
The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. Now, so you're listening to Creative Kingdom, and Kate Kennelly, Arts Officer with Kerry County Council, is still with us. Kate, there's lots more you wanted to mention in the little time we've left, and we want to get in a beautiful Christmas song as well. So away you go. We'll do. So, Joe, I want to thank all the team in the Arts Office. So we have um, Hannah Pinkert, who's the Assistant Arts Officer, and Emma Carmody, who started with us in August as our new Creative Communities Engagement Officer, Clive O'Callaghan, who's fantastic support in the office, and Niamh Tahora and Morel Murphy. So great team across the office and just say happy Christmas to everyone and their families. And Joe, I mentioned too, I suppose, across other agencies now, and this is where the arts and creativity has grown, and it's it's such a pleasure to see it. You know, we have the Kerry ETV have been supporting the Screen Kerry initiative, and you know, we've had Siobhan O'Sullivan on. Um, and we've had a very recent film query again about potential shooting actually in the coming weeks so you know there's always things happening in that area and we had a brilliant Kerry Film Festival as you know um, then Music Generation Kerry and I know we're going to hear something from a student shortly so Deirdre Johnson again doing great work and Deirdre Enright through the LCYP we have a lovely event coming up on March the 2nd and we're working with a lovely Trilly lady, Kira O'Mahony, who works with Promenade and um, they're a company that we're working with across four local authorities and it's about performing outdoor spaces and uh, we're running with March the 2nd, which is a Saturday and it's um, to look and focus on Youth Mental Health Awareness Day and we'll be organising a series of events from 12 to 6pm in Island of Geese and Tralee so it'll be a combination of performances and workshops, they'll all be free and we're hoping a lot of young people will come out and participate and they will be like music, theatre, poetry possibly visual arts as well uh, to name but a few so it's great to have so many people, Joe, involved and what I've noticed over the years is the expertise and I suppose the experience of people working in the sector you know we've a lot of really good people in Kerry and um, from Kerry who bring a lot back when they come back so just to acknowledge that um, our new website as you know is up and running so arts.kerrycoco.ie if anyone wants to do a bit of browsing over the holiday season <laughs> and as always we'd be on social media as well at Kerry Co Arts um, and I suppose to mention as well we've been doing a lot of mentoring this year so with festivals and with visual artists in particular um, and we've had the short film bursary so we're really looking forward to seeing the fruit of that uh, hopefully in quarter one of 24 so as I was saying to you earlier Joe I don't know should we uh, get rid of yours all together because everything is just running into everything else at the moment <laughs> completely and of course Kate Creative Ireland is another great success this year it has been, Joe. So in with Creative Ireland Kerry, um, the office here has supported 46 projects across the county and has engaged with uh, literally thousands of people, including the footfall past the murals and your own following on the, on the radio, Joe. We're, over, we're nearly at the two million, would you believe? But look, in terms of the, I suppose, day-to-day -day traffic, there is a lot of people engaging with creativity that wouldn't be otherwise. And Crununanog, as you know, we had 55 events uh, with over a thousand children young people involved our strategy was launched and we'll be hard working at that next year and I was actually at a meeting there in Dublin during the week with Emma and uh, Creative Ireland the national office and the good news is um, you know funding is in situ again for next year so we'll be advertising hopefully in, in January for creative communities engagement grants um, so I'd urge communities to just contact us because we're delighted to help out and get things up and running Outstanding Now I'm going to ask you a difficult question 
What is, if you to pick one highlight, what is your highlight of the year in the arts world in Kerry? What was it this year of 2023? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Okay, that's like, that's like asking me to pick a favourite child, Joe. <laughs> I can't really do that. But I would say um, Culture Night this year was, it was a real highlight for me. And uh, being at um, a number of events in Tralee and just the atmosphere around the town and the way people people held you know they stayed for all the events um so people really enjoyed it and it's that atmosphere and that there's a, such a lovely sense of community when people come together through arts and creativity and to me that's a lot of what it's about it's about that that just sense of peace and joy and just togetherness and, and community and humankind that comes through sharing arts and, and creativity so yeah culture night i really enjoyed it uh, what about you joe you must have a highlight I do. And one really stands out to me is uh, the Pipers in the Cave that was on there during the, the end of the summer. And uh, Fina the Bush and Paddy the Bush kind of hosted that with Pipers from, uh, there was a Piper from Scotland and then you had the famous Cassidy family and there was a load of great musicians. But it was inside in the Valencia Slate Quarry, way in, in the cave of it, way in at the end. It was absolutely spectacular. Um, you know, just the natural acoustics of the quarry itself. It was unbelievable. I, I was uh, uh, privileged uh, to be there so well done to everyone involved Naden Ford of Valencia State Quarry as well for hosting that um, place so that was that. that's the that's I suppose just a sample Kate it is like you said yeah. choose your own children choose your favourite among your kids because there is so many wonderful events Kate I want to thank you for your contribution all year it's been absolutely brilliant letting people know what's going on around this county we always run out of time we always have loads to, to, to talk about because it just goes to show the wonderful people that are involved in the arts world so I want to wish you and your family a very happy Christmas and also to everyone in the arts world as well a very happy Christmas uh, Thank you Joe and the very same to you and all at Radio Kerry it's always a pleasure to, to deal with you and uh, you know I, I love when I hear back from people that they find the, the programme useful and informative and interesting a few people have said to me they make a point of making it off you know so uh, that's down to everyone involved and yourself in particular and thank you so much and Joe, just a bit of festive um, cheer now, I suppose, for your listeners with Music Generation Kerry. There is so much happening with young people across the county. And as I said, the ETB are, are the lead partner. They're doing great work. But we thought it would be very appropriate to play out with a song um, by one of the, mu the Music Generation Kerry performers. And uh, I might let you introduce that, Joe. Yeah, I will. And uh, that just leaves me to thank Abigail Bernard, who was on sound. Francis is on the way, so keep it here on Radio Kerry. I'll be back again next Saturday at 9am with another Saturday supplement. Until then, look after yourself and take care. But let's hear now from Dennis Moroni, transition year student in Clorgan, as part of Music Generation Kerry, performing It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. <laughs> It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look at the five and ten It's glistening once again With candy canes and silver lanes that glow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas 
toys in every store. But the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be on your own front door. A pair of hop-along boots and a pistol that shoots is the wish for Barney and Ben. Dolls that'll talk and will go for a walk is a hope for Janice and Jen. Mom and Dad can hardly wait for school to start again. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere you go, there's a tree in the Grand Hotel, one in the park as well. The sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Soon the bells will start And the thing that'll make them ring Is the carol that you sing right within your